This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There are many, many issues surrounding Hurricane Irma, and many of these are incredibly, frighteningly serious. People's lives are being threatened, their homes, their businesses are in danger of being wiped out, and I am sitting here acutely aware of all that, as is everyone else. In fact, I was actually down in South Carolina after Hurricane Andrew 25 years ago, helping as I it happened to be down there and I ended up helping clean up after it. I get how destructive and how dangerous this can be. And Bill Kelly and Scott Thompson all through the day today have done a great job handling the big picture of what is going on with this storm. So I want to talk today at, at this hour of something a little less life and death. It's a little less serious. Again, we're not making light in any way, but it's a little less serious. But I, I, I just want to be clear that I am aware I'm not talking as if I'm completely unaware. We are aware that this is a very dangerous, very perilous situation. But that said, most Canadians are not going to be affected by this directly. We may get some rain on Monday or Tuesday, maybe some heavy rain, but we're not on the path of this. But there is something that does affect Canadians that could be um, affected by this. And that is there are an awful lot of Canadians that do an awful lot of traveling in the winter to places like Florida, to homes they rent, to hotels, they have flights, they may have uh, rental properties, whatever else. They also go on a lot of cruises. And this has the potential, this Hurricane Irma has the potential to affect an awful lot about that. want to talk about this a little bit. Because it will affect many people listening. Chris Gray Faust is the senior editor at CruiseCritic.com. She is um, paying close attention and understands the cruise industry very closely. Chris joins me now. How are you tonight? Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, No, I'm glad to have you. Um, The reason, especially why I wanted to have you on, of anyone else, is I was reading a piece today that described what's going on. The headline was that this hurricane is the cruise industry's worst nightmare. There could really be not much worse with the location and the size and everything else. Would you agree with that? I can't really comment on whether it's their worst nightmare per se, but I, I will say that this is a big storm. This is, we have, we, we're seeing so many cancellations and so many cruise ships being affected by this. Essentially, all sailings over the weekend from Florida are, have been canceled or diverted, and that has not really ever happened. So it's pretty unprecedented. What happens at this point uh, to all the ships or many of them that were far enough away that they couldn't get back to Florida? Florida is their home port, and they are now at sea, and they obviously aren't going to make a run now because they don't want to get caught in this. What happens to those ships that are still out there? Well, the cruise, you know, the one thing with hurricanes is that you do have, you, you don't see the exact path. The exact path can change. But we've been watching this storm now for several days, and certainly the cruise lines have been watching it very intently as well. So what they've been doing, they started acting early to shorten the itineraries of the current sailings and bringing those passengers that are currently on board back to Miami in enough time for those people who were parked there and were Florida residents to get off and evacuate or conversely or take a flight what they're doing for the other passengers that may not live in florida they're saying hey you can stay on the ship we're going back out to sea and you can stay with us we're going to keep you out of harm's way you're going to get a longer cruise than you thought but you're you know the ships will go to a safe harbor 
There is, um, I, I was reading another interview today with the uh, the guy who runs, I guess it's Port Canaveral, the entire port. And it's not just the cruise lines that's affected, because I guess Florida is, well, the, the port's down there. It's one of the biggest industries, or one of the biggest, Florida's a huge center for shipping, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. And he's talking about if this thing comes, if this storm comes up the the outside, the Atlantic side of Florida, like they're talking about, it could do heavy, unbelievable damage to Port Canaveral, where he is, to uh, Port of Miami, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. What happens to the the all the bu- they, all of those places have buildings? They all have what? What happens if there is massive damage to all these things? How do the lines just carry on? Well, all the crew. I mean, most of the major cruise lines in the United States are headquartered in. Uh, Miami. And so they are evacuating as well, many of them. Um, in terms of the ports that are look, possibly being affected, you're right, Port Canaveral is one of them. Miami is obviously the biggest. Uh, we're not quite sure where, the, you know, we're not sure yet where exactly Irma's going to hit in Florida. But yes, you're right, it has a great potential to hit the biggest cruise port in the United States. Uh, port Everglades there at Fort Lauderdale is also right next door. And there's also a few ships that go out of Palm Beach. So we're really looking at four major cruise ports that could be affected by this. Which is a big, big deal, because I was reading that this, of cruising in Florida is something like an $8 billion a year industry for the state. Like, it's, it's not insignificant. This is a big thing for the state. Oh, absolutely, and tourism overall. Sure. And, you know, let's, you know, there's the people that work at the cruise lines. I mean, they're there, too. They're residents, and they're having to cope with this as well. Um, with this storm, I think... It's, the cruise lines have been really being proactive with this in terms of announcing changes, in terms of getting the ships sort of positioned where they're you know, dropping people off in, in time to get off, while they, you know, and also then giving them time to leave, because you can't have these cruise ships in port during the storms. You want them far away. So they want their ships. These are incredibly expensive ships. They're big assets for these companies. So the ships are not going to be in the ports either. You know, they're, they're sending them all away. What, do you know where, I mean, is there, are they all heading in the same direction? Are they all going to the same place or is it just scattering? Well, quite a few of them have modified their itineraries to go to Cozumel over in Mexico. Uh, in general, the islands over in what we call the Western Caribbean, which is, um, you know, Cozumel, um, those, those cruises go down to Honduras and Belize, as well as islands like Grand Cayman and Jamaica. This is where all these ships are going to be kind of going in that general area over there. Um, and, you know, they're, they, they, they're capable of being at sea for a while, but they can also stop and refuel or pick up food, depending on how big the storm is and how much Miami is affected. If there was, Chris, if there was significant damage to the cruise ports and that meant that they could not load or unload passengers at those places, which uh, I guess, I mean, would they simply then start using a different port and require everyone to change their plans or would they cancel cruises for two or three or four weeks? Well, what happened, you know, we kind of saw this happen with Harvey, which was, you know, just just a little bit ago, just a couple weeks ago, two, not even a couple weeks ago, it seems like short, seems like a long time ago. It does ago, seem really like it, yeah. Like a week ago. What happened there were, there were about four, there were four ships that were scheduled to go into Galveston, and they couldn't get it, I mean, Galveston itself, uh, the port was closed, but the city wasn't as flooded, but of course Houston was. Houston had immense damage from the storm. And so what happened were, was the Carnival Company ships, they went to uh, New Orleans, and there they gave passengers the sort of choice. They said, you can get off the ship here in New Orleans and make your own way back to Texas or wherever you're going, 
Or they said, they told the passengers, you can stay on the ship and sort of take your chances of when we can get back to Galveston. And it was about 50-50 from all reports that about half the passengers decided in New Orleans, hey, we're done, we're getting off, we can make our own way back home. And about half said, no, you know, we understand our cars are in Galveston. That's where we want to get back to Texas specifically. So we will just stay on the ship. And Royal Caribbean did the same thing. They took their ship Liberty of the Seas all the way over to Miami. And they also did the same thing there where they gave passengers the choice, hey, you can fly home and get off, or you can kind of take your chances and come back with when we know we can get back in. And so that's probably what we'll see with this you know, that type of thing. I mean, they won't be scheduling. If the port is of Miami is closed for a while, they certainly won't be scheduling new cruises out of Miami, but they might, they'll might. they probably make other plans with their other ports. Yeah, I, again, just because of the, the one of the paths, and again, the guy from the, the, the port in, in Lauderdale, or in, um, in Canaveral was saying, this potentially could run up the east side of Florida and severely with, with water, with flooding, with, a, with all these things, could severely damage all three major cruise ports in the state. And then what do you do is because I mean, I've been out of all three. I've gone on cruises out of all three. There's huge buildings there that you need to move people around. And if those were severely damaged, I, I just don't know how, unless they start relocating all their ships to somewhere else that's not in Florida, but that becomes very convoluted too, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we'll just have to see what happens. You know, it's hard to predict. What about the fact, and, and again, I, I understand for anyone who's just tuning in, we understand Chris um, from Cruise Critic is on the line. Uh, I understand, we all understand this is a secondary issue to the devastation that pretend, that has happened in some places and that will happen. We understand that. But go to that devastation. There are, when you get on a ship, there are ports that they go to and some of the islands that they are, that they go to regularly, we've heard of horrendous damage that happened there. What happens with that? I mean, I guess that the cruise lines are allowed to just change their itinerary as they wish, but it, it, do they do anything else? Do, they, do the ship lines get involved with helping to rebuild those places, or is that, is that too much to ask? In the past, that's definitely happened for sure. Um, we've, we've, we've seen that uh, over the years periodically when, when hurricanes hit the islands. Right now, the, popu- the cruise ship islands, the ones that are really popular ports that seem to be the most affected, um, perhaps the one that we've heard the, we have the most sort of accurate reporting out of is um, the island of St. Martin, which is a dual nationality island. Half of it is French and half of it belongs to the Netherlands. And their governments have already gotten involved in terms of assessing the damage, in terms of humanitarian relief, that type of thing. We're also, it's really kind of too early to tell, but we're hearing that the British Virgin Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands, particularly St. Thomas and St. John, also have had significant damage. So that will be, a, that will, if those ports are, have issues, that will also cause a lot of itinerary changes for sure. But we're already seeing cruise lines starting to say, hey, we were scheduled for St. Martin. We're, we know we're not going to go there. We're not going to put that type of burden on the island right now when they're assessing damage and trying to figure out, you know, what their populace needs. We're not going to put that pressure on them now. We're going to go somewhere else for now. Last thing before I let you go, and I appreciate the time. To the best of your knowledge, has a major cruise ship ever been caught in a hurricane? 
Not that we've heard of. I mean, the, the cruise lines do everything they can to keep their ships away from storms. They really, you know, they have their, their passenger safety foremost in their mind, and they are doing everything they can to get them out of the path. I know that Irma looks, you know, it looks like it's sweeping over the entire region. There are safe harbors, though, over in the Western Caribbean. There are places where the lines can bring their ships to keep them and the passengers on them safe, and that's exactly what they're going to do. Chris Greyfaust from CruiseCritic.com. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Sure. Thank you. It's a, um, let me say it one more time, because I I understand that this is a secondary thing. I also understand, though, uh, that while no one's life is at risk by missing a vacation or having to make different plans, I understand that I don't want to put it on the same level with what's happening down in the path of this storm. I do understand there are a lot of Canadians, a lot of Hamiltonians, a lot of people listening who do things in the winter, who like to get away. And depending on how this storm plays out, if the, today we're hearing them talk about the worst case scenario, which, and the worst case scenario that we're hearing is that it takes a north turn, the storm takes a north turn and runs right up the eastern side of Florida that the eye of the storm basically goes over the east edge of the state of Florida because there are so many buildings, so many houses on the water, so many everything. And when you run the eye of a hurricane that's a Category 5, or even if it drip, dips down to a Category category 4, there will be so much damage. And the travel infrastructure, and of course Florida is, that's one of their biggest industries, not just cruises, but Disney World. I mean, imagine if if a Category 4 storm were to blow over Disney World. If the eye of that happened to go that way. I assume, I don't know, things are pretty well built down there, but nothing holds up, nothing perfectly holds up. This is a massive blow to the local down there, the local economy. But again, a lot of people book their vacations. A lot of people have plans. And if you have a vacation booked for November even at Disney world or November out of a cruise port or November at a rental home down there. These are things that I'm sure there's a lot of people who are scrambling around trying to figure out what they are supposed to do. How do you deal with this? What, how do I even find out? Well, there's, you know what, we'll we'll find out. Hopefully, hopefully I don't have any, any thing in here. Some people touch wood. There's no wood in here. But hopefully what happens is the best case scenario that they're describing, which is that this storm goes north earlier than hitting Florida and just veers back out into the Atlantic. And so there's some rain and there's some winds, but this is not a direct hit on Florida because boy, oh boy, it, um, I said off the top, I was down in that part of the world 25 years ago after Hurricane Andrew. And I'll tell you, it is astounding, the power of these things. I would not have believed it. I remember helping to, with a chainsaw, carve up a tree. The, 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 the root, the tree was about five feet across and it had been completely uprooted by the wind. And you look and you go, okay, if it can pull a tree that's got a five foot diameter trunk out of the ground with a massive root base, what's that going to do to houses? What's that going to do to businesses? It's, it's, it is staggering. It is staggering, hoping that none of this, hoping that all the talk, Bill did a, Bill Kelly this morning did a terrific job on this. Scott Thompson this afternoon, his show did a terrific job, hoping that all of this becomes unnecessary, that all the talk becomes unnecessary. 
That would be the ideal. That after this is all done, you people listening can write us an email saying, you guys wasted our time by talking about Hurricane Irma. If we get an email that says that, that will mean, we'll, we'll take that. That will mean things turned out okay. I'll, I'll deal with the complaint that we talked about this too much rather than the alternative, which is on Saturday night or Sunday morning or Monday when we're back on the air that we have to be talking about absolute devastation through Florida. That's the worst case scenario. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Announcement today that the Ontario government says it's going to be changing a few things in the education system. One of them involves standardized testing. It's going to tweak this a bit, what it does with the EQAO and things like that. But the other thing is report cards. It's going to change report cards. So if you're a parent or a grandparent of someone between kindergarten and grade 12, you, the kids will be bringing home next year new report cards that showcase skills such as creativity and critical thinking. And all this is part of a new refresh, in quotes, refresh that the Ontario government says it wants to do to get education back on the right path. Because this is after health care, I don't know if education is second on the list of spending, but an enormous amount of money is spent on education in this province, as it should be, presuming, assuming that kids are learning the way they should. A couple days ago, you'll remember, you'll recognize the name of my next guest if you were listening a couple days ago. We've never done, well, I've done this once before only, I realized, where I had someone on and brought him right back because he was so good and also because he fit exactly with what we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Don Klinger is the Associate Dean of Education at Queen's University. He's the past president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Education. We had him on just a couple days ago. If you remember, we were chatting about whether students should be able to negotiate or discuss their grades with their teachers. Well, he's now back to talk about this, and we're thrilled to have him. Dr. Klinger, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, good evening, Scott. How are you? Well, okay, let me get into this, because my first impression when I think about the idea of changing the report cards and changing what they're doing here is, if I can't get the results that I want, if I can't get the students to be good enough and it's starting to look bad on the education system, I should change the way the scoring is done so I can bring the grades up. Or I used another example earlier today. If I'm doing archery and I can't hit the target, bring the target closer to me so there's a greater chance that I will hit it, and then I can say, hey, look, everyone's a better archer now. (laughs) Is that what's happening here? No, I mean, to be fair, it's not. I mean, if you look at they're still going to keep the same kind of achievement of uh, courses and things like that. Uh, what you're seeing here is something that's been in, the, in discussion for many years about what else is important in education. So these kinds of skills are, you know, these, these are important. So it's one thing to be able to hit the target, but there's other things that you want to, you know, if you're an archer, you can imagine, you know, it's not enough to just hit a, a standing target. There's other targets to hit and, you know, choose when to hit a target, things like that. So these are, you know, no one can doubt the value of these skills and that we should somehow value them and, and talk about them in our children. Does this mean, though, that, okay, as, as we start doing this, and we've heard a lot of things that have changed over the years. I mean, we've gone from grades of percentages or ABCs to other things, which I honestly, I can't even remember because I don't understand. When my kids would bring report cards home, I'd be baffled. Um, does this suggest that when you and I and our parents and our parents' parents were at school and they would get a percentage grade because they either got the answer right or wrong, that we were being 
not being graded properly or we were achieving things, not achieving things that we should have because there were peripheral issues we should have got better credit for? No, again, I, you know, it, it, it's really about recognizing that school is not just about achievement of, of, of subjects, you know, like math and, and literacy. Uh, it's really, you know, we do think there's other skills that we should be learning, creative thinking, critical thinking, uh, communication, collaboration. These, these are all valuable skills, citizenship. But, it, it, again, it's not a new idea. I mean, I was working in the Langley School District in the 1990s, and at that time we were creating something called the Graduate Profile, which was trying to uh, demonstrate alongside academic achievement, students were achieving these very important skills. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a laudable goal but it's a challenging goal. <laughs> well, it's challenging because I would think that it's very difficult to we uh, to offer a grade. Uh, if, if you do a math test, you can grade that very simply. It's right or it's not. How do you grade someone's creativity or their... Uh, what's one of the other ones here that I looked at that I thought was a unique one? The underst- uh, understands and respects many different local, national, and global perspectives. How, how do you grade that? Uh, well... <laughs> You're, you're, you're hitting back to the challenge that I've been having with this debate for the last several years. I mean, measurement specialists and psychology researchers have been cautioning against such attempts for years. Um, you know, the policy people, they tend to avoid us because, uh, you know, we, we rain on their parade, right? Because they, they want, we highlight the reality, and they, you know, they have their hopes and dreams for simple solutions to these kinds of really complex skills. Uh, it, it's, it's a challenge, there's no doubt, and, and we haven't found the solution yet. Well, let me let me use that last example because this is actually on the new um, the draft. They call it the draft descriptions of. Uh, hold on a second. I'm of transferable yeah. skills. Sorry, I was I was zooming yeah. in by accident. I couldn't read it. The draft <laughs> descriptions of transferable skills, and one of them. I'll, let me read it again. Understands and respects many different local, national, and global perspectives. Now that on its face sounds like a laudable, as you say, a laudable idea. I want to be able to understand the world around me. But what happens if when I have to do a test of some kind, the, the different perspective that I hold when someone says something about women and I say, well, I understand the perspective that women should not be treated as equals. Is a teacher going to give me credit for, having a, for understanding a different perspective? I don't think so. So I, where this gets very complicated, and this is just one example, is how does a teacher determine, A, whether you truly do understand it, and B, whether that's actually a, a, a perspective you want the kids to hold? Right. So well, these, things are, I, these things are complex, as you say. Oh, completely. And, and, and you're hitting exactly the challenge we've had. And, and, you know, again, we're trying to measure these things in, in post-secondary education. I work with medical schools. They're trying to measure these same kind of skills. And... One of the things we're finding is not just, is, you know, are there certain perspectives we shouldn't actually value, but also I think they're not recognizing that these skills are highly contextual. Uh, the one I go after is, is creativity. You know, I think that's a great thing we should all have. But, you know, as an example, you know, I, as we're talking, I'm creating answers to your questions as we speak, right? That's, that's creativity. Yep. But those answers are based on my years of experience and, uh, you know, I'm bringing all that to provide a really thoughtful response, you know. If you ask me about, uh, I don't know, talk about American politics, you know, I could be really creative in my answers, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they wouldn't be very thoughtful. So, you know, that creativity is is also a very contextual thing, and, you know, it has to be creativity of some substance. So this is, you know, I I, I, I 
feel sorry for the teachers. It's not going to be easy to do this. Uh, in fact, we have not found a solution in 30 years. And, you know, you can go back to Socrates. They talked about it then, too. Well, what about, I mean, creativity, it's another great one you bring up because uh, I pondered this one today when I was trying to think about the creativity idea. There are kids, and, I, and we all went to school with these kids. There are kids who were the creative artists, the writers, those kind of things. They will, in the eyes of a teacher who is now grading creativity, they're going to do exceptionally well, you would think, at this kind of thing. But we also went to school with the kids who got 99 in math they understood math very simply. Couldn't explain for the life of them why they were able to get the answer, but they got the answer. And I don't see that their skill set is less valuable or they should be penalized for the fact that they could not necessarily explain how they got the answer. And yet it sounds like they're going to demand or this is going to be one of the things. You'd better be able to explain how you got it instead of just getting it. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the challenges in our case, what will happen with these, these transferable skills is there's going to be attempts to measure these outside of the context of, of subject areas. Uh, so it's going to be more of a global rating of, of creativity, of problem solving, of critical thinking, that it's not going to be linked to uh, your subject areas per se, which I think is also one of the challenges as you try to do that, because now teachers have to have a, a very global understanding of their children. And, you know, we're asking teachers to measure not only their skills, their student skills and achievement of, of subject areas, but now we're going to ask them to, me- to measure their global citizenship, their innovation, creativity. I mean, I wouldn't even ask the CEO of a, of a large company to do these things. Well, I'll give you another example. Is I don't know if they still do it, but once upon a time uh, at McMaster Medical School, a renowned medical school, they did not just admit students based on their grades. They had to supply this whole paperwork, answers to all kinds of things, because they didn't just want academic nerds who got 99.9, but who had no bedside manner to necessarily be doctors. You could be a great doctor and not be the smartest person in your class. And that you look at, and I think you touched on that, that is something that is admirable. But at the same time, nobody said, we want that guy with the great bedside manner who has 63%. Exactly. It was a it was it was a piece, but it was a tiny piece. So you still had to do all the other stuff, and so you may have only got ninety six. And when I say only, if you added all my high school marks together, I barely got ninety six. <laughs> but you may have only got ninety six. But because of the intangibles you're talking about, that'll push you over the top. But this sounds like it's more. They're putting more emphasis on those things. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I think you, you, you aren't missing anything. This is certainly, as I said, it's been in the uh, literature and the researchers and, and even some of the policy people have been talking about this for quite a while. I mean, the math example you give is a, great, is a good example. They're, they're trying to think now. Um, they're trying new things now. Oh, hold on a second. Um, can you hear me still? Okay? I still can. Yeah, no. Sorry. Uh, sorry, someone just phoned. Uh, McMaster is trying a new thing. They call it the MMI, and Queens tries it. Other universities try it as well. And they're trying to measure these skills alongside as well. Again, they're very difficult. They, they seem to all be under one general skill. If you're creative, you're probably innovative. You're probably thoughtful. You're probably a, a very strong on citizenship, on communication. So we're not even sure if we can separate these skills into something different. So, you know, I, I'm the... I can't blame them for wanting to do this, but I just don't know how they're going to do it in any real effective way. 
And what you're going to see is exactly what we've seen in our other research in which as teachers struggle with this, what they do is they end up giving students the same kind of grade in everything. So it becomes what we call a single measure. And we see that with the skill, learning skills and work habits right now. It's just one skill. Can they do school? <laughs> well, let's go back. We may have talked about this the other day when you were on here, but it, yeah. are we? was there or has there been a sense especially in post-secondary, because these are the kids who have now been pumped out of the the secondary and the elementary system. Is there a sense in post-secondary, in universities and colleges, that the wrong kids are getting in, that something has gone horribly askew? Because I've always seen high school, and it, again, nothing is perfect, but that it's kind of been the the best Darwinian system we have, that by the end of it, those who are good at something are going to be funneled this way, and those who are good at the at, and the w- bad ones are going to be weeded out. So that me, uh, as someone who was horrible at math, I'm not going to end up as an accountant or as a an, as someone doing the math to support bridges with physics and stuff. But equally, someone who can't write their name is not going to be pushed into a stream where they're going to be doing creative writing or novel writing or something. It it seems to have worked so far. Has it not? Or, or, or are there tons of people who arrive at university and we say, how in the world did you ever choose this line of work or this line of study? Yeah, I mean, Darwin had the advantage where, you know, you could look at natural selection and you could, and you could get rid of all the ones that couldn't survive. But but that's that's kind of when you go into physics or something, like are we getting a lot of people going into physics who can't do math? It seems that for the most part, people are being shuttled into the areas they should, isn't it? Uh, it, it is happening. I think one of the things that all post-secondary institutions are occurring in society as a whole is we, we want higher levels of, levels of education of, of all of our, uh, of, our, of our professions. I mean, you know, we can use radio announcers. There's probably a time we didn't need a lot of education to be a radio announcer. Still. this is proof right here you're listening to it right now there you go but i mean you know the the, the level of skills is much higher and so i think one of the things we are seeing is that there's certainly a lot more people going to university in the past wouldn't have gone uh but we're also much more demanding of the kind of skills we want of our of our graduates compared to what we asked for in the past and so these kind of skills that they're trying to measure these transferable skills are things that you know everybody believes are important uh, I just, you know, I've, I've battled quite strongly against the idea of trying to grade them and mark them because I think they're very, very contextual and challenging to do that. So I think it should be a big part of education, but I I think any attempt at this time to try to measure or grade them is, is, is fraught with challenges and will, will not go down a good path. We only have a minute or two left here, but uh, I've talked about this on this show before, not not with you here, but it is my belief wholeheartedly, and I could be way off on this, but that our society has somehow decided that everybody should go to university these days, that this should be something, and we want free university, so everybody can go, and I don't think that university is for everybody. I think there's no shame in going into a trade or something else if you're good at that. Then I'm thinking we should spend more time at high school trying to find the strengths people have rather than cramming them into these things and direct them where they should go and make it so that, you know what, if you are not a wonderfully creative person, but you're really good at something else, let's spend our time directing you there rather than trying to mold all the students into the same kind of thing. So they all head off in the same direction and they follow like sheep, which is what we seem to want to do. Yeah, well, and, you know, I completely agree with you. And as I said the other night, I think we have to get past the notion that the purpose of high school is to get children ready for university. I think 
uh, other careers are, are really valuable and other options are valuable. And I do think at some point in the future when we start to demonstrate the value for these other kind of transferable skills, that provides those pathways and demonstrates that, you know, you don't just have to have the academic skills. There's other things that are, we value in school and in society. So in that way, I think that's why this goal is valuable from a, why we should you know, promote these skills. So, you know, I, I can't disagree with you at all. I completely support what you just said in terms of, you know, it's not just about university. There's so many other options out there. Dr. Don Klinger, the Associate Dean of Education at Queen's, a past president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Education, and uh, apparently now our go-to guy for all things education on this show. Uh, Dr. Klinger, really appreciate you doing this again. Thanks so much. As always, a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. It, it is... Okay, two things. One, I'm looking at the draft descriptions of transferable skills that were sent out as part of the new report cards that we're going to have maybe I'm being cynical, but a lot of this sounds like hocus pocus mumbo jumbo. Let's just come up with some edu talk that we can try and, I mean, I don't even understand what half of this stuff means. And I have no idea how a teacher, as Dr. Klinger just said, I have no idea how a teacher is going to possibly grade some of this stuff. Uses empathy to understand themselves and others. How do you grade empathy? And the second point is we shouldn't necessarily be trying to get every kid to be the same. This is, this seems to me, we've got math, we've got English, we've got all these other things. You can be good at one of those. You don't have to be good at everything. You'd like to be, but you don't have to be. We can choose paths based on what you're good at. And it doesn't always have to mean going to university. I've got friends, I got one friend that comes to mind immediately as I'm talking, who was not a university type guy. He went into a trade and you know what? He's probably making five times what I'm making right now. And he's darn happy, not just with the money, but because he's doing something he's good at and he likes. And if you had told him, Hey, you know what? Uh, your, uh, future must include university. He would have been miserable. I'd, I'd love to sit down with someone from the government who's behind this and just say, do, do is this really what, really, put, let's hook them to a lie detector machine. Is this really what you think is good for people or just because you have a job and you have to come up with stuff and so here's your best option? I, I, I'm not convinced. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So I heard this next story be talked about here. I think Bill and Scott talked about it. I've seen it elsewhere. I've seen it written about. And I didn't really pay all that close attention to it. And then all of a sudden I sat down to read it and really look at it. And I got to tell you, we live in a strange, screwed up, misguided world at times. Story that you've probably heard. I'm assuming you've heard it by now. Uh, comes to us from British Columbia, where a father of four kids, age seven to 11, the oldest one is 11 and he was kind of in charge. They have they have to get to school in the morning and he taught them how to take the local city bus, basically their version of the HSR. And from the bus stop where he put them on the bus to where they had to get off, it was one bus. They didn't have to change buses. They just sat there and it took them to where they were going and they got off and they were at their school. Well, somebody and shocking in our society that there might be a busybody with nothing else to do but call and get someone in trouble. But there was a busybody who saw these four kids sitting on the bus and called 
whatever they call their child services there. Here it's Children's Aid. Maybe it's Children's Aid there. I'm not sure. But anyway, called to file a complaint that these these four children had been abandoned. They were young orphans who were left on a bus all alone and they were in danger or something along those lines. I'm sure that's kind of how it sounded, a hysterical thing and probably led by, um, it, it, you know, I, I, this is not really, uh, I'm not too concerned about them, but somebody would be. You hear that all the time, right? I don't, I don't want to actually be the one who looks like the prying person who's sticking my nose where it doesn't belong, but I'm not all that bothered by this, but I know somebody will. So I'll take the step and make sure that someone is notified. But anyway, so child services gets involved and launches a week long, weeks long, pardon me, plural, weeks long investigation into this family. The father who simply put his kids on a bus that he had taught them to ride and to get from point A to point B is now under investigation, presumably for some kind of not providing good child welfare. And now he's got to go through this whole thing. And I'm sure there were interviews and I'm sure he, you know, the stress levels through the roof because he's not by every indication that we've got from these stories. He's not a bad father. He's not someone who literally said, here's a buck and a banana to feed you for the day. Go find your way to school 13 kilometers away. He did everything to show them how to get there. But the end result of this is the ministry in BC found that Get this. Where, where's the line here? After a week's long investigation, the ministry concluded that children under the age of 10 cannot be left unsupervised. So you're thinking, you're thinking, oh, okay, well, they can't be put on a bus. No, 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 no. They cannot be left unsupervised on a bus, riding bikes around the neighborhood, or walking to the corner store. If you are under 10 years old, if you have a child under 10, According to this, according to the ministry in BC, part of our leadership, part of our society's leadership, if you have a child under 10, you must supervise them at all times, no matter what is happening. They can never be out of your sight or else you are abandoning them. You're a bad parent. You are, pick your spot, pick your words. And I'm reading this thinking to myself, oh, and it gets worse or better, but I think worse because it points out here that in uh, in other provinces the british columbia court uh, british columbia court ruling found in other provinces the legal age to be unsupervised is 16 including in ontario you must be supervised according to this you must be supervised in ontario up to the age when you are 16 if you are a 14 year old hanging out in the neighborhood with your friends mummy and daddy one or the other must be with you watching over you at all times or else somehow there is something horrible going wrong here with your parenting. What has happened to us as a society? Honestly, what has happened to us as a society that we have determined that children cannot ever be left alone or you as a parent have failed and are a miserable excuse for a parent who is putting your child's very well-being at risk? How dare you? How dare you allow your child to be abduction bait, which I'm guessing is what's behind this whole thing. We can't allow someone's kid to be abducted and murdered, which is a horrible, horrible thing. No one would pretend otherwise. But I started doing a little research today because I thought, wait a second, if we're worried about abductions, if this is really because, I mean, okay, I suppose that we could say, 
you might be worried the kid would get lost and end up in an alleyway somewhere in the downtown living off garbage scraps and leftover pieces of burgers from wrappers or something. I mean, I don't know. But I'm guessing that mostly the fear that most people have is if you're not watching them, something horrible will happen to them. Someone will come along and snatch them up. Well, I did a little research today. First of all, something like it's well over 90% of abductions are done by people who the the child knows. Probably a parent in a squabble over who has control of the child, the other one grabs. So almost, almost every abduction, almost, not all, but almost, the vast, vast, vast majority of these are by people who the child knows. And I thought, okay, but what about the other ones? Like, what a horrible thing. Yes, it would be a horrible thing. But we have these fears of abductions, like there is somehow this crew of abductors out there roaming around looking for children to snatch up. Well, there are bad people. Let me reiterate that. I'm not arguing for a second they don't exist. But according to the Toronto Star last May, so a year ago May, May 2016, guess how many kids across Canada, across Canada, have been abducted and murdered since 1970? Ben, take a wild stab at this one. Since 1970. So we're talking now about uh, 47 years. Since in the last 47 years, how many children do you think in Canada have been abducted and murdered? 12. No, you're, you're a little low on that one. 155 children. Oh. That is, that is higher than 12, but it is far lower than the idea that somehow everybody who leaves their child outside for five minutes is going to be snatched up and something horrible is going to happen. Every one of those is a tragedy. Unquestionably, every single one of those is a horrible tragedy. But it doesn't happen very often. And we've now put rules into place, apparently, that says if you let your kid go outside and ride his or her bike around the neighborhood with their friends, if you let them walk to the corner store, if you let them go to the park and play, somehow you're doing something wrong. What has happened to us that we've become, we've taken helicopter parenting, which we all look at and sort of laugh dismissively at as those people are idiots. But we've now taken this idea of helicopter parenting, of bubble wrap parenting, and we seem to have enshrined it into the ministries and into the government and into the rules that say, you must do that. You must be the helicopter parent. You must wrap your child in bubble wrap before they go out. That's what we're now telling people. What do you think about this? I'm going to throw the lines open to you if you want to jump in. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I can tell you that when I was a kid, and I'm not that old, but when I was a kid, I was outside with my friends all the time without mommy and daddy standing out there watching us all the time. We had a corner store that was a good, probably a mile away, Jimmy's. We went there all the time, took our quarter and bought a Lola in the middle of summer. We were outside playing road hockey. We were outside playing kick the can. We were outside occasionally playing Nikki Nine Door. I should, probably shouldn't admit that one. That was never me. That was the friends that tried to lead me astray and turn me into a bad citizen. 
but we were doing something stuff outside all the time. And so was every other kid on the street and in the neighborhood. That was, that was growing up. That was being outside and it was all year round. I mean, mostly you think of it in the summertime, but we'd be playing road hockey. We'd be outside all the time doing stuff. And there was no expectation that our parent was going to be out there the whole time monitoring us on the chance that maybe something would go wrong because the chances of something going, if you look, we we all had injuries, kids had things, you scraped your knee, you occasionally got a cut. A couple times people would break a bone, although it was not like it was a constant thing that was happening, but you know, stuff happens to kids when they play. We don't, this again, we have people who are really worried that our kid could possibly be slightly injured. That's been part of life as a child. Just the other day, and I know this is fiction, but it was probably a month or two ago, my wife and I watched the movie To Kill a Mockingbird again, which is based in the Dust Bowl, in the Depression. And A, the kids are out there playing all the time by themselves. B, Scout ends up breaking her arm, stuff happens, but you survived. It was part of the experience of childhood. We didn't need to have a parent looming over our shoulder all the time. And we did fine by this. Chris joins me on the line. Chris, how are you tonight? Oh, good. It, it, it brings back a, not a good memory, but a memory of, of something that happened to me. My son was 10 and involved in a, in a car accident. Okay. And he'd gone to the 10 years old and gone to the corner store. And and a lady hit him, and guess what the insurance company tried to do? They tried to have my wife and I as negligent parents. They they tried their damnedest. The lady was clearly at fault. She was charged of a whole whack of things. We won't get into that. But they they went after us. The insurance company went after us, trying to say that we were negligent parents by allowing our kid to run the street. And the only part was we didn't even know our kid had gone to the variety store because he was at a friend's house, and then went from the friend's house to the corner store. Now, Chris, I'm not going to ask you for every detail of this, but I can tell you there have been times, especially when my kids were much younger, that we did. We would go out for a walk after dinner and the kids would be on their bikes, sometimes with two wheels, sometimes with training wheels. They are not always even right beside you. There was a chance that even if I was standing there, that a car could have hit my kid. Yep, life happens. Life, thank you. He went to the corner store and, and, and the funny part was, or the ironic part was, he was lying on the street, and the things you remember, he was saying to the paramedics, my dad's going to kill me. And they're like, no, they're not. No, that. He goes, you don't understand. I'm not supposed to cross the busy street to go to the corner store. It was a major street that we sort of did have a rule that they weren't supposed to cross it. And he was with some friends, and they crossed it. And he got hit. And he was in the right. I mean, he was clearly in the right. They were crossing properly. And this lady, you know, she was charged with leaving the scene of an accident. We surmised she was drunk because she drove away from the scene of the accident and whatnot. But the insurance company came after us as negligent parents. Chris, I... Listening to you talk about this, and I heard it earlier, and I thought, God. And I run a pet store, and we get people all the time that want to volunteer. And the first thing my insurance company says, they cannot volunteer at the store until they're 16 years of age or old. Chris, I appreciate the call. I got to, I got to run, but thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it. Let me, let me jump up here to, uh, to Peter. Peter, how are you tonight? Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. What do you think about this? Are you on the side of the, uh, the folks who say monitor the kids all the time or you say, give them a little freedom? Oh, come on. You got to have, they got to have a little bit of freedom. 
Uh, I'm like yourself, like when we grew up, uh, we were outside playing and everything else. The parents were at home or doing whatever. But what about, like, what happens now when the, uh, once you put your your kid on the school bus? Uh, are parents supposed to go with them on the school bus? Well, no, because, Peter, here's the thing. Uh, and again, I, I realize that I'm very cynical and I'm very skeptical, but the school bus is a government run thing. So you, they're not going to complain if you are in the in the hands of the government. They're going to, you know, they'll look after you. Yeah. It goes the thought. I just I just look, I, I to me the whole thing is it's so overbearing. It is so overbearing to say that a kid is only safe if they have eyes on them at all times. I just don't believe that. No, I I agree with you 100%. What about the what about the the little kid that likes to have uh, I don't know how many there is anymore, but when they had paper route. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't know how many kids are delivering papers anymore, but oh. Peter, listen, I really appreciate the call. Thank okay. you. All right. Have a good one. Uh, let me point out to this. Now, it's not just Peter and Chris and me and whoever else is listening to this who are who is scratching their head. Um, again, coming from the story in the Toronto Star, there is a University of British Columbia population and public health professor points out and acknowledges, yes, the expectations on parents have changed. Under our feet, without us really realizing it, everything has changed. But she points out overprotective parenting has become normal. And, okay, so so we've established now that not only does the government want us to be overprotective, and that this has now become our new normal, that we are going to be overprotective parents. But, she continues... It's harmful to children. This kind of overbearing, overprotective parenting is harmful to children. We need kids to learn stuff by taking some chances, by doing things on their own. And this is the exact same kind of parenting that tells, that gets mad at other parents on a sports team because someone has scored against their kid or the coach is not giving their kid the right playing time or the right playing partners or on and on and on. I'm not arguing that parents are perfect in this case. We're not perfect. And especially some parents. But when you now have government agencies demanding that you behave like this kind of parent that none of us actually like, even though sometimes we all act like this. Look, if you've had kids, there have been times when you have been the helicopter overprotective parent. And even those of us who look at this and go, oh, I hate that. I hate that. That is so ridiculous. We've all done it. We're all guilty of it at one time or another or more than one time. But now you've got government agencies saying, oh, no, that's what you've got to be. You're a bad parent. You're a negligent parent if you are not doing that kind of parenting. What are we actually doing to our kids? This is the biggest question to me. What are we doing to our kids under the auspices, under the guise of government saving our kids? Because we can't do it ourselves. Heaven knows no parent could actually raise their children without the guiding hand of the government leading us. All those children that grew up in the... 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all those kids, oh, it's a miracle they're not all dead or disturbed or damaged. It's a miracle because the government did not demand that mom and dad be involved in everything that happened. Funny thing is, though, all those kids who grew up then and became adults, they all seem to be okay. Best I can, well, not all, 
but the vast majority, they seem to turn out pretty good, pretty well. What was the, what do we call the greatest generation, the wartime generation, World War II generation? I don't think that there were government agencies saying mom or dad had to be with the kid every single moment of time. Because you want to know something? There were 15-year-olds lying about their age, signing up to fight in World War II. That you might have been a little more concerned about. Putting your kid on a bus to go to school, and this is what we're now going to be bent out of shape about, and this is what the government is going to say you're being a bad parent for allowing to happen? Where are we? Go- Where's the next step in this? Honestly, what's the next step in this thing? Where does it go from here? That you have to have those wristbands, that, or maybe mom and dad and kids now, like the old kindergarten class thing with the rope, where everyone had to hold on to the rope. Every time you go out now, mom and dad and the kids have to hold the rope, so they're all joined together, so nothing bad could happen. It's 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 insanity. It really is crazy that we've now decided. That kids under 10 in some places, but under 16 in other places must be monitored at all times. There's a lot of, if that's the case, there's a lot of bad parents out there. Let me tell you, if you're one of those parents, shame on you. Tisk tisk tisk, Because you are a terrible parent. I say with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, I congratulate you for giving your kids a little bit of leeway and a little bit of room and a little bit of non-government interference. That's all I would say. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.